Today's guest is an absolutely extraordinary woman. She uses her writings and teaching to help other people stop compartmentalizing their lives and to realize who they truly are. I found one of her quotes that just resonated so much with me. I'm going to share that right now and then let you dive into our conversation, which is one where I learned a ton and I know that you are going to really enjoy hearing from her. Here's the quote of hers that I found that just really resonated, and I'm sure it will with you too. She says, a woman should never be defined by what she's been through. Instead, our challenges that we overcome make us stronger, and our stories are meant to encourage and empower others, giving them fuel for the future. She has certainly not allowed herself to be defined by the things that she has been through and the challenges that she's encountered have made her even stronger than she originally was. And her stories definitely do encourage and empower other people, myself included. So here we go. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicur Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Today, I am so excited to bring on a really extraordinary woman who has both an amazing life story and who is engaged in very powerful, wonderful work in the world. Shawanda Randolph is the founder and executive director of Decilla Comfort Center, a nonprofit that supports homeless and low-income families and women who have experienced domestic violence or any form of abuse, and also helps youth and young adults who have been affected by sexual and domestic violence and sex trafficking. She created the organization to help restore hope to survivors because she understands firsthand the traumatizing effects that abuse can have on both adults and children. After experiencing years of abuse as a child, Shawanda vowed to use her life to help others understand that they don't have to live behind the stigmas and stereotypes created by other people just because they were once victims of abuse. She coaches women and young people on their healing journeys to overcome their trauma, helping them to rediscover their identity and that they have so much to offer as they begin to live in purpose and on purpose, pursuing the dreams that they once had lost hope of achieving. Shawanda is a mom, an Air Force veteran, author, and philanthropist. Welcome to the show, Shawanda. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm super, super excited to share your story and also the work that you're doing in the world. So the way I like to start is with some quick questions, and uh, then we'll dive right into the nitty-gritty parts. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What book are you currently reading? Oh, wow. Um, so I am actually rereading one of my books, to be honest, and it's because we are doing a an actual 40-day journey to kind of help just people in the community. And my community for this particular book has been people from various states. So we're kind of doing a rediscovery and reconnecting to maybe some things that we 
maybe lost sight of in our lives. So it's the first book that I published, which is called Fresh Mana Journey to a New Beginning. So we're going through this 40-day process. So that's something that I've kind of been diving into lately. That's interesting. I saw that that was one of your books and I was really caught by the title. What What is the meaning of Fresh Mana? So Fresh Mana takes kind of the background story of understanding how God took the Israelites through the wilderness so that they could understand who they are, reconnect to their identity, the way that God saw them. And because of what had happened in their past, he wanted to help them to open their eyes up to see who they were and reestablish that connection with him. So with Fresh Manna, this book is for anyone, uh, no matter what background you have, to really kind of rediscover your self-identity. How do you see yourself? And is this based off of your identity that has been projected upon you from other people? Or have you really taken time to really uh, discover who you are, what you like, why you don't like things, and what you believe in and why you believe in those things so that you can really come to understand truly who you are and be authentic in who you are? Oh, that's great. That sounds like something that I would really enjoy reading too. So thank you for that. What is the most unusual place that you've ever visited? Oh, wow. The most unusual place I've ever visited. Let's see. So one, I've moved around a lot. (laughs) I moved around a lot even before I joined the military. But I would say one of my deployments that I had where I went to Kuwait, um, not ever somewhere I ever really thought I would go and visit. (laughs) But um, I learned a lot uh, while I was over there. So for me, it was a little... I guess you can say unusual or off the, off the beaten path, but I actually enjoyed that particular uh, deployment because for me, being in that part of the world, it was like a, if I can compare it to a New York City in a different country. And by that, I mean, so I grew up in North Jersey and in North Jersey, we would visit New York all the time. So in that area, you have so many people from so many different parts of the world. And so you get to learn so much about so many different people and their backgrounds. And so being in Kuwait at that time for that deployment, it was a different way of having that experience because again, I was meeting so many people from different countries and understanding their life experiences and what brought them to Kuwait where many of them were there trying to make a living for their families and hadn't seen their families in years. So for me, that was probably one of the most interesting places that I have been. Oh, that's, that's cool. Did you find Kuwait to be a place where you felt safe moving around as a, as a woman, or did you feel a little bit vulnerable? So I didn't feel vulnerable, um, probably because of the fact that I was serving in the military. And in that we actually receive a lot of training about the countries that we're visiting before we go over there. One, so that we can respect the culture and the land in which we're going to. So that understanding kind of help lessen the vulnerability because you somewhat know what to expect. However, with me being in the position that I was in, which is a supervisor or leadership position, 
and what they would call boss, <laughs> that was a little unique because I was a female boss. And so there were times that I had a couple of challenges because of me being a woman and having to go through added security, which wasn't really added security. It was more just being stopped because I was a woman. But it was learning how to maneuver through that and standing my ground to let them know, like, no, I'm in charge. And you see me coming through here every day. So why are you stopping me? And I'm coming through here multiple times a day. But also respecting the fact that this is part of, you know, what I'm going to have to deal with a little bit. But we're going to have to understand each other. Like, I understand your culture, but you're going to have to understand mine. And we're going to have to come to a common ground because I have to do my job. Interesting. That's a, a tricky path to walk. It's very much so a tricky path to walk because there were times, um, most of the time I was supervising men, men coming from other countries as well. Like I said, they were coming to, you know, make money for their families that they were sending back home. And we had, you know, some security issues there. Um, I had been challenged by some other individuals at the time that I had to tell them, like, you can't come on the installation today, or you had to lessen the number of vehicles that you have to bring on this installation. And, you know, they were used to dealing with, you know, women that would not stand their ground, rightfully so, because of the culture. But they were taken aback when, you know, I wouldn't back down and say, well, you're going to deal with me. I remember there was a one, one gentleman, he just kept going back and forth and, and um, he wanted to speak to my boss. And I said, well, you can talk to my boss. Matter of fact, I'll call him for you, but you're still not bringing your vehicle on here. You can jump in a vehicle with one of your other guys, but it's too many vehicles coming on my installation today. And so he was surprised that, you know, I gave him my phone, that you don't have to use your phone. I'll give you my phone. And we called my boss and my boss told him, no, you need to listen to her. And this is what we're doing today. And so that's what we did. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really great that, you know, your management was willing to back you up, but also that you just had the balls, so to speak, to just stand your ground and be very clear and not aggressive or nasty, but just super clear and calm about this is the way it is, dude. Exactly. And they had to understand that, you know, I'm not trying to be insulting to you, but just like you, that you have a job to do. I have a job to do also. And my job is to protect the people that you know, that are working for me and all the other people that are on this installation. So, you know, you have to respect at least that part. So what specifically was your role? So I went over there outside of my normal career field. Um, I went over there as uh, what, what we call, um, how do I say it? Like, I'm trying not to use acronyms all the time. Um, it's called a TCN escort, which is like a third country national escort. So all the individuals that, like I said, were from other countries that were working on or around the installation, um, we had to escort and supervise them as they worked in various capacities on the installation. And that installation wasn't necessarily our installation. We're kind of, we're kind of on a section of the Kuwaiti base. So we have to monitor all of the security per se with those individuals coming on and off the installation. So various projects that's going on at the time. So we're working with civil engineering at the time. Wow, a very delicate role then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very delicate, especially with the wars in the past and making sure that we keep that balance of respect and honor for what was happening. You know, things that we would celebrate for victories as Americans because of various wars. It's not something that they would, you know, celebrate. It's, it's degrading for them. And we have to honor that as well as we look at certain things. Yeah. Okay, what's the biggest change in your life due to the pandemic? 
Um, the biggest change in my life due to the pandemic. Wow, I think I, I see. I have to really think about that. I have still been working. <laughs> so I've still been working a lot. So much to the point that my sister, <laughs> I talk to my sister a lot, one of my sisters a lot. And she says, have you been quarantined since this thing started? I don't think you've sat down <laughs> since this has started. And I'm like, well, people need help. So I'm still kind of out there working. So I don't think I've slowed down very much since the pandemic. It's a little different for me as far as how I relate to what's going on. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the experiences that I've had while I was in the military. So while I understand the heaviness of what's happening, I think for me, my training and my experience has helped me to remain calm and optimistic and and stay in tune with the reality of things as I continue to work. So I worked, how do I say it? So we had like a, a medical control center. So if there was a, a disaster that happened, I would be sent down to run our medical control center, which is helping to normalize things, um, helping to work with all the other teams in the medical center, as well as teams across the base to deploy out to different areas, what to do and how to do it. So always working in emergency type situations is kind of my norm, if that makes sense. So for this, I don't think it moved me in any different way. I think it just kind of helped to put me back in that place of what I learned or back in touch in the place of what I learned and getting back into and using those skills of what I learned while I was on active duty. I love that that's what you have found because for me teaching self-defense, one of the big pieces is learning how to navigate through fear Mm -hmm. and understanding that it is a skill that you can build and kind of once you have it, it's there all the time. Like it's not something you have to keep practicing once you've learned how to do it. And it applies to any situation that brings up anxiety and fear and doubt and, and worry and concern. Uh, And so the fact that you got trained to deal with emergency situations gave you a whole skill set and a level of comfort with the unknown and with uncertainty and with fear that was just like, okay, but I'm still going to get the job done. I'm still going to be taking care of things that I need to take care of rather than getting paralyzed and just being like, oh my gosh, now what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, why is this happening? So you, you invested so much time in learning how to navigate through situations that were really hard that it's almost like an unconscious competence for you now. Yeah, it, it very much so is. It's, it's, it's a good way of putting it. I, one of the things that I, I talk to people about is making sure that we um, don't decompartmentalize our lives and really taking a, a, a step back and looking at all the things that we've learned and the journeys that we've had, whether they are good, bad, or indifferent, and looking at what we've learned from all those experiences. And as we learn things through different parts of our journeys of our life, I think it helps us to evolve 
into uh, the people that we are. So when different challenges continue to come in our lives, we can pull things out of the uh, out of our say toolbox of things that we've picked up or gather along the way from things that we've dealt with our past. So I, I think that I, I like how you mentioned that because again, it kind of relates to how I talk to people and say, well, let's look at the experience that you had and what did you learn from it and how can that help you in the future? So that if something does come up, how, you, how can you navigate through that? How can that help you instead of setting you back? Yeah, that's so powerful. And, and the funny thing is like, I've, I've had these conversations with my kids. I've got four kids and one of the conversations that I've had with them as they've been growing up, because they're all young adults now, my youngest is 21, but it was just basically like, even when you go through something and you feel like it's a failure or you feel like you made a mistake or it, it was like the wrong path to go down and you're sitting in this state of like, oh man, what a, what a waste of time. Like I shouldn't have done that. There's always value to it. And sometimes you don't even know until like a decade or two decades later that having gone through that experience has given you exactly that thing that you need now. Yeah. For that right moment in time later on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. All right. Two more uh, questions and we're going to dive into the nitty gritty stuff. Okay. What is your favorite self-care practice? Favorite self-care practice. So during my days off, <laughs> I take a hot bath <laughs> and I kind of gear up for my for myself for my days of uh, my, my downtime. So I go to um, a place called Lush and I get these bath bombs that are all handmade. <laughs> so I go get those. I take my hot bath. Um, I still use my Epsom salt with that as well. Um, and I indulge, I indulge in goodies. <laughs> like, so I like Ben and Jerry's, so I can't eat Ben and Jerry's all the time, especially with me being, uh, closer to 50 now, <laughs> it kind of, kind of kicks in a little bit faster, but I like my Ben and Jerry's and I like my sour candies. So that's my me time. Other than that, I still keep a balance just throughout my days every day of, as much as I need my phone to work, I'm not dependent upon my phone. So I will cut my phone off in a minute. My phone is on do not disturb at certain hours of the day. And the only people that I can get through is my alarm company and my son. <laughs> um, and that's part of me taking care of myself. But on my self-care days, I definitely, I take my bath. I do my, my which my, if my family listens to this, they'll say, what? She does what? But because uh, to them, they're like, oh, wow, that's so girly. And you know, it doesn't fit like what they see me doing all the time. But yeah, my hot bath, my face mask from Lush, and I pig out. That's, it may not seem like the typical self-care, but it's very relaxing to me and I enjoy it. I even did it on my birthday. I didn't do anything else, but I sat home and I binge watched on TV. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's that's really (laughs) indulging all the senses and really treating yourself to something special. Yeah, because, you know, I, I work with people in crisis. And since I'm always working with people that are in crisis, I have to do things that removes myself from having to be on. And so having my phone turned off, just relaxing, and just even indulging in something that's for me, something sweet or something sour, you know, that, that guilty pleasure. 
that's for me. And even if I binge watch something, I don't have to think about anything. I can just turn it on and it's, it's on. And I may do that while I'm actually writing because I can never honestly sit still and just watch TV. So I'm always doing that while writing something anyway. And if I'm not doing that, I might be in my yard, which I just started a project in my, in my backyard. So those are things that I kind of do for myself. That's great because it's that kind of downtime that really lets your whole system recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. What advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Oh, wow. Um, advice I would give. So it took me a long time to really learn who I am. And part of that was because I did a lot, of, I did so much for everyone else. And by the time I was in my 30s was when I really started taking the time to start going, well, wait a minute, why, why am I doing this? Do I even like this? And why did I stop doing the things that I actually like? And so for me, I would tell young women, especially with so many influences that are around them now, especially even with the height of social media, which I think social media can be a positive thing if it's used the correct way. I think sitting back even at a young age and really taking a look at self-exploring why we're doing the things that we're doing and who are the people in our lives that will help us to pursue those things that we truly want to pursue are things that you know, I would tell a young woman to really start to take the time to invest in while you're young. Make the connections to your connections. Sometimes we do not realize why people are in our lives until, I hate to say it this way, but until it's too late or until we're way older and then we're having to take, take, take a look back. But when you're young, if you can make those connections to your connections while you're young, man, the power that is behind those relationships is immeasurable and they're invaluable. And it's that's when you want to take that opportunity or take the advantage of those meaningful connections. And those people will help you to propel you in the direction that you really want to go into and not just people that are going to just pump you up. Like I tell my nephew, like I'm I'm not here for the pump up the pump up show. I'm here to really help push you forward. So Make the connections to the connections and really take some self time to self-discover who is in your life, why they're in your life, and you know what you want to do and who's there to help push you to what you really want to do. Learn that early on. Wow, that is very powerful advice. I'm going to have to sit and think, with, think about that one for a little while because I'm just thinking like that really applies when you're in the beginning of your life in your twenties and things, but also I think super appropriate for women who are in midlife where everything is changing, you know, maybe yeah. the marriage is ending or the kids are leaving home and like everything's up for grabs again. Like mm-hmm. now what am I doing with my life? I think that what you just suggested and, and advised is just as applicable to that stage of life too. It's, it's so key. I mean, Everything that I do, even with my organization, I relate it back to relationship. And so by me talking about the relationships that I have and even naming certain entities of my organization after individuals who have made such an impact in my life, for me, that is 
sharing that experience and sharing that value of relationships um, to those that I'm helping so that they can understand, you know, not just by saying relationships are important, but to give those two examples of how and why those relationships are important to your healing, to your growth, to your development, and to whatever that is level of success that you want to define in your life. And so I have those people that I talk to all the time and I take what they say, even if I don't like it, because I know it's for my good. Yes. And because you've developed the relationship, you have trust. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, can you talk a little bit about your personal experience with abuse and violence? So, yeah, so I, um, I, my abuse actually started when I was very young, um, probably before I even started elementary school. Um, I had some experiences of physical abuse and I would have never known it was physical abuse, especially at that age. Um, and I never told anyone what was happening, no matter what questions they, they asked, because I also tried to protect the person that abused me. Um, so for instance, when I was very young, I don't even remember what happened, but I remember, so it was my dad, uh, which was my stepdad. So my dad, um, he hit me. And when he hit me, I had this knot on my head. And immediately after he saw what he did, he went and got ice, he, like he panicked. So he went and got ice and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Like, what did I do? And all I can remember is I'm just crying. Um, and I remember my mom asking later what happened, you know, like, well, what happened to you? And I remember saying, I tripped and I fell for no reason. I just said, I tripped and I fell. Um, and I just, I don't think I really knew to tell or to not tell, but as a kid, you're, you're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't even know if it was out of fear. It was just huh, I don't know. I don't want to tell my dad. I don't want my mom to get mad. I don't know what's going to happen. So maybe fear of just the unknown of what's going to happen. And I, saw, I said, I fell. And my mom was like, you fell? That don't even make sense. So how did you fall? And I said, well, I tripped. I went in the bathroom and I tripped and I fell and I hit my head like on the radiator because we had those big, big radiators back east. And I knew she didn't believe me because she even took me in the room and she said, show me how you fell. And I promise you, I tried so many different ways of trying to show her like how I fell. And it was almost like she, she didn't believe me. I know she didn't believe me, but unless I told her anything different, what was she going to believe? But I do remember her and my dad getting into an argument about it. But I had been abused, you know, since, like I said, maybe four, four years old, five years old. Um, I experienced sexual abuse that started probably when I was about nine, um, nine years of age, um, all the way until I was about 15 years old. And there were times that nothing happened. There were times that it actually progressed, but it actually stopped when I was about 15 because um, my basketball coach actually asked me if something was going on at home because I was quitting basketball. So all those years I never told because no one asked me what happened. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I can understand a couple of things like that. Like I totally, totally get why it was so hard for you to actually tell what happened with your dad uh, and your mom having that, 
mother's instinct that was like, this is not actually what happened, but I can't get to the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but also I think it's really common, isn't it, that the people who are experiencing stuff like this won't volunteer the information and people around them who may kind of have a feeling that maybe something is off are very good at rationalizing a way that it's probably not. And then they don't ask. Yeah. um, We had this conversation um, late in life because I, so I, I, I told about the abuse when I was 15 and, you know, we moved, we lived in, we were living in New Jersey at the time. And, you know, I told my mom, I just don't want to live here anymore. And she packed us up and we moved and we moved to Maryland. That's actually how we wind up moving to Maryland. And, you know, we went on with our lives um, later in life. You know, my mom and dad, you know, try to work some things out. I'm the oldest of four. I'm the only one that's not my, my dad's uh, biological child. But no one really knew that I wasn't, um, other than, you know, immediate family. But no one ever really knew that I was never his child because it just wasn't publicized. I was always his daughter. But it wasn't until um, later when they, you know, try to work things out that there was some kind of tension, you know, between more tension between my dad and I, and I, I just left home. Um, I never really said much to my mom about it until probably in my thirties when we actually had this conversation of, you know, I'm the oldest of your children. And I always felt like I just didn't belong in the family. And we talked about the abuse and stuff. And, you know, one of the things that my mom said to me which I thought was interesting was she always thought she was doing the right thing because she married my dad when I was three. My dad and I had always been close. And so she just thought that we were just close. She's like, well, you know, he wanted to spend time with you. You wanted to spend time with him. And I thought I was doing the right thing by having you guys develop this father-daughter relationship. I did not know all of this stuff was happening. She had no idea. I never told anything. I was an honor student. Um, I hardly ever missed school. I was hardly ever sick. I was a national athlete. I had been taking martial arts since I was maybe three years old. I'd been competing since I was four. My dad even had to like lie on my applications because I wasn't even old enough to compete, but I had been doing it for so long. So I've been competing my whole life. So no one ever suspected, like, you know that I was, I wasn't this quiet kid that was just sitting off and distant from everyone else. I was just around and I was a bossy little kid. So they would have never suspected that I was ever being abused. So my mom said she thought, she really thought she was doing the right thing, allowing this relationship between my dad and I. Right. It all makes sense, you know, in hindsight and, and just knowing the kind of kid that you were, the fact that you were a national athlete, what was that in? What kind of activity was that? Um, in martial arts. Yeah. in karate. Oh, well, even more so, you know, if you have <laughs> yeah. a young girl who is a nationally competitive martial artist, you would never say that it would be possible for her to be 
experiencing the things that you experience because you would just say, oh, well, she could she could put an end to that in a heartbeat. Like she's strong. She's confident. She's got good boundaries. She's got the physical skills. Mm-hmm. Like she would just say no. Right. Without understanding at all, <laughs> all the reasons why you didn't. Yeah, that's that's the crazy part is because I'm always the strong one. So the strong one is the one that people see as not needing help. The one that takes care of everyone else um, and the one that kind of takes care of themselves is the one that never needs help. And so no one can ever recognize the signs of needing or wanting help. Well, and also if you are identifying yourself as being the strong one and you're doing all of these things that are all about being powerful, doesn't it make it awfully hard to ask for help? Oh man, I will tell you, I, I always had a hard time asking for help growing up because I felt like I had to be the strong one. I felt, you know, I felt like I, this, this is who I had to be. Um, I mean, so much to the point to where when I graduated high school and I went off to college, I tried to do it by myself. I'm here at Rutgers. I never called home for anything. I never asked my parents for anything. I said to my parents, I'll just do it myself. I got three other siblings. You guys take care of them. I'll take care of myself. It was like I had to be strong. And I don't know where this came from. I think it was just always self-preservation. It was always like I was doing it anyway. I had cousins that I was close to that I used to babysit. And it's crazy because now that we're adults, I'm thinking, you guys realize you're only like four years younger than me, but I've always been like this big cousin. And it, you would you would think that when we were younger, when I'm watching everyone's kids, that I was like 10 years older. It's a four-year difference, <laughs> you know? So it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the strong one. I'm the one that everyone's looking up to. And by the strong one, it's physically and mentally, you know, the strong one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then how, so how did you end up in the Air Force? So I ended up in the Air Force because, again, I wanted to do this. I felt like I needed to do it on my own. I felt like I needed to pursue my education on my own. So I started at Rutgers. It became uh, too much of a challenge for me to do that on my own. So I left and came back, went back to Maryland, started working, figured I could work and, <laughs> and, even, and go to school, but that became unbalanced. So I was working more and never going to school. And um, so I talked to some friends of mine that I went to high school with. and. Um, decided to join the Air Force just so that I could pay for my education. And I would tell you that when I joined, I said, I am doing four years and I'm out of here. No one can tell me anything different. Um, (laughs) If anyone tells me what to do, is this going to be a problem? I still had this edge that I really needed to let go of, Uh, you know, that self-preservation. But by the time I hit three years, I had already re-enlisted for six. And I wind up making it a career. The Air Force was not something I ever imagined doing, but it is something that I am so grateful that I did. That's really a neat path into it. And I I love when I hear stories about people who kind of accidentally fall into something that really turns out to be amazing. And and in hindsight, it's like, wow, my, my life would never be the way it is now if I hadn't done that thing. Oh man, I learned I learned a new perspective on relationships, you know, friendships, sisterhood, career, every my whole perspective on life changed 
even experiences I've had with dealing with um, dealing with death really changed my perspective on life. So it really helped me to honestly help me to grow up and it also helped me to heal. It helped me to heal the right way. Can you say a little more about that? So I am, like I said, you know, going into something with a perception of like a negative perception, you know, I'm I'm thinking the Air Force is one way. I'm thinking it's like what I saw on TV. And when I go in, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this place is great. You know, I, so when I first joined, when I first got to my first base, which was here in Arizona, (laughs) go figure, um, I was stationed at Luke. And unfortunately, right after I arrived here, my grandmother had passed away. And I mean, people were coming to me and it was like, we're going to help you go home. We're going to help you. You know, and for someone who never liked to ask for help, and I had people coming to me with, you know, just extending and offering help and just being this family that I not, never thought I would have outside of a bloodline family. Because I have a huge family that I grew up in, um, like as far as my mom's brothers and sisters and, you know, cousins. And so I never really dealt with a lot of people outside of my family. But here I am, far away from home. Um, no family here. And all of a sudden, I have these people that are treating me like family and helping me. Um, I went through a, kind of an ugly divorce and was going to school, was working and raising my son. And I had supervisors and people who did not have children that were helping me with my son so that I could pursue the things that I was trying to pursue to be a better mom and just to be a better person. And I would have never imagined receiving that level of help. Different illnesses that I've had in surgeries, the people that were at my bedside were these military friends and family, you know, people that I now call family. I would have never imagined having those connections and having a different perspective of understanding true relationship and valuing relationship um, of that magnitude. So it really helped me to grow up. And these people have been in my life and my son's life, people that I haven't even seen in over a decade, but we still talk. They still help me with my son. They still ask me about my son. I ask them about their families. My first supervisor was at my retirement ceremony. He was at my son's high school graduation. And that's not something I would have ever imagined my life, you know, having that in my life outside of, like I said, my, my, my blood family. Wow. What an amazing gift to have people in your life where you have that depth of relationship over a long time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think one of the things that I've experienced, I know my kids experience and I hear it from other women is just that many of us feel like we don't have those kinds of friendships, um, that, that the friendships are superficial and that like, if you change your job or you move, then they just kind of end. And you're talking about, those are really deep bonds and deep connections that will be there until your last day on earth. Probably. I'm telling you, it's, it's so different because when I, 
I listen to people talk about friendships, for instance, especially a younger generation when it's, well, I don't, I don't talk to my friends every day or I haven't talked to my friends. And I'm like, well, just because you don't talk to them every day or even every month doesn't mean that they're not your friends. Your friends are the ones that show up. Your friends are the ones that are there when you need them the most. And it doesn't matter if you haven't seen them in a month or a year or two years, but they show up when you're, when they're needed the most and different people are in your life for different reasons. I have a friend that, you know, I, both of our, our children, well, our children are the same age, um, our oldest children are the same age. And we were pregnant at the same time we were on active duty. Well, I had a, um, a second child and my second child passed away. It was my friend from the Air Force who was there every step of the way. She would come to the hospital. She would watch my son while I was in the hospital. Um, when I came home from the hospital and my husband at the time, you know, was off working, she was the one that went with me, you know, to make funeral arrangements. She was the one that was coming to my house you know, helping to clean up my home when I just couldn't get out of bed because the things were just kind of tough. And then, you know, she moved away because the military, you know, assignment, she moved away. We hadn't seen each other in years. And when my cousin was graduating from the Air Force uh, basic training and I was going down to Texas, I called her and said, I'm going to be in town. And she's like, oh, great. So I, you know, I was going to stay at a hotel and there was a problem with the hotel. They couldn't get us in. And so I called her and said, hey, I need somewhere to stay. I, I got to get the room over here for my aunt. And can I stay at your place? And she just opened up her home. And my son and I went over there. But I hadn't seen her in forever. Those are friends. So it doesn't matter that I don't see her all the time. I don't talk to her all the time. We're friends. And the friend, like I said, friends show up when you need them. Yep. That's beautiful. That's a, a beautiful story. And I'm sorry for the loss of your child. I think that's probably the hardest thing anybody can go through. But yeah. I'm so glad that you had the support and the care and the love to help you get through that. Well, I would like to shift gears a little bit and hear how you ended up starting your nonprofit. How did that happen? So, like I said, when like I talked about the abuse that I went through. Um, when I mentioned how people had no idea that I had been abused, but yet, you know, this was going on in the background. So they saw me in one light of this strong person, but yet the abuse was going on in the background. When I was 15 and I um, disclosed that I had been abused, when new people came into my life, it was the opposite. They projected me as solely a victim. Everything else that I had been doing in my life seemed to have gone out the window or, you know, they could not see that. So everything they projected at that point was just a life as a victim and all the problems that they perceived that I would now have in my life. Problem with men, problem in relationships, problems with school. And it was just problem after problem. And for me, I couldn't connect to that because on one hand, all these other people that were in my life saw me as a strong person, but yet never saw me as being abused. 
And now I have this other set of people who only see me as being abused and can't see my strength. And so I remember telling one of my cousins who I consider a big sister, I said to her, you know, I don't like this and I don't like the way that I was treated. And I told her that I was going to use my life to show other women or other people that they don't have to live behind this box that people put them in just because they've been abused and that they can be or do whatever they want to do in life, no matter what has happened to them. And so that's what I wanted to do. I did not understand what that was going to evolve into. I just knew part of it was me telling my story. But it was after I graduated or right on the verge of graduating seminary that I actually started the organization of DeSilla Comfort Center and writing the business plan for that um, as I was, like I said, about to finish school and started it right, uh, right as I was graduating, right as I was finishing my last few classes is when I started DeSilla Comfort Center um, to do exactly what I said I was going to do when I was 15. Well, I guess two things are coming up for me. Number one is I can just understand how incredibly annoying slash frustrating, irritating it would be to have like what happened to you be the thing that now defines you as opposed to all the other things that were up until that point, finding yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it's like this happened to you. Now this is who you are. And I can just imagine like what a smack in the face that would be and, and how that would lead to like, but wait, no, no, like it happened, but that is not going to define who I am and what I do with my life. There's more to me than that. Yes. Yes. How did you deal with the fact that people were only seeing you through that lens and sort of disregarding the other 99% of who you were as a person? Um, <laughs> so I think what helped me as a child was the fact that I was a little bit of a rebel. Growing up, I've had to learn how to use that in, in a productive way. <laughs> and I learned how to use that in a productive way. But um, trying to prove people wrong initially was a good motivation. Learning eventually that it's not about proving people wrong, but understanding that if this is who I am, then I don't have to prove anybody wrong. I just have to share my story. So I had to learn how to grow and use that rebellion, so to speak, in a positive way, instead of just using it to just, like I said, trying to prove people wrong. But initially, having a little bit of that, I call it that Jersey edge, I think, of, well, who are you to tell me that I can't do <laughs> what I want to do? I think that that, that kind of kept me going a little bit, um, especially at the time when I was told I was going to have problems with men or problems with boys. And honestly, the majority of the friends that I had at the time were mostly male. So that was a challenge for me. So anytime someone at that time would tell me something I couldn't do, I was all for trying to tell you or show you that you are absolutely wrong. <laughs> I, I love that, you know, and it, it's such a great example of other people 
trying to impose what they believe are limitations on you that you can see have absolutely nothing to do with you and who you are and that you just are basically like, no, I mean, that's you putting your stuff on me. That's not me. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, like I said, initially it just became this whole rebellion thing. And, uh, you know, and like I said, as I grew um, and and began to mature, it became understanding that, you know, this is more of a projection. Why are they feeling this way? Is it because of experiences that they've had or, you know, people that they've met or just different beliefs that they've had? I'm like, you're entitled to that, but you also have to see me for me. And even with the learning that you have in life, your education, you're supposed to use that not to group everybody in a box, but to use that for each individual person. And we have to be able to use our education wisely. You know, we take the knowledge that we gain, but we have to have wisdom to use it. Yeah. Oh, man. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That is so much wisdom in a short little nutshell right there. That is great. I would like to hear a little bit about your education and how all of that and your life experience then have come together into how you work with people who have experienced trauma and violence. So as I mentioned before about, you know, talking to people about learning to not decompartmentalize our lives and realizing that uh, different phases of our journey will help us in various ways is what I've had to learn about myself. So my family would kind of joke about my education. They're very proud of me, but there was always this joke of, man, what are you going to like not go to school? So while I was on active duty, I had the benefit of being able to obtain various experiences working as a healthcare administrator, working in various parts of the hospital, whether it's um, our resource management office, learning how to run the budget um, and finances for the hospital, learning training and development and putting together training programs or writing programs for individuals and implementing those programs, disaster preparedness, working with people in crisis, um, crisis intervention programs. And also, you know, going through and obtaining an associate's degree in human resources, um, working in recruiting and doing that as well, um, an associate's degree in healthcare administration, a bachelor's in business with healthcare administration, a master's in business, and also a master's in ministry and theology. And it's crazy because as much as they are kind of spread apart, with the experience that I've had in working in various sectors, um, including working at one of our confinement facilities or basically the prison in the military, working in mental health, working in parole and clemency, all of that has really helped me to develop various aspects of the programs that I have started putting together and realizing the importance or the value that they have in the lives of individuals who need to heal and need a fresh start in their lives. So understanding some criminal justice, understanding, like I said, human resources for personal and professional development, and even being able to help individuals with finding jobs and, you know, building them up in that aspect. So all of that is kind of like my whole career from the military and that training has come full circle and kind of dumped it all, (laughs) dumped it all into the Scylla Comfort Center um, and helping me to navigate the various areas of the nonprofit world 
the various areas of dealing with domestic violence and sexual assault and human trafficking. Wow, that's amazing. And, and I guess a great example of what we were talking about way back at the beginning of everything you do has value. And sometimes you don't even know until later how it's all going to come together. You just have no idea. I mean, because there were times even in the military, I were, I had to do things that I was like, man, I don't want to do this. <laughs> Especially when it comes to like event planning, um, fundraisers, um, serving on. People don't realize that even in the military, there are, you know, organizations that are nonprofits that we are a part of. So having that experience and sitting on the executive teams of, you know, those nonprofits really helped me because I had to learn how, you know, write those articles of incorporation, working with the legal teams and making sure everything that we're doing is above board, going out into the community and raising those funds and getting resources we needed so that we can give back out into the community and putting on those events. So while we had all of those additional duties or additional responsibilities, what would I have done if I didn't? You know, it really helped propel me to move faster in what I need to do in my own organization. That's great. I just love that. I love it to see how it all kind of comes together. That's really cool. So what's the most common challenge that women are dealing with when they come to work with you? The people that I work with, a lot of them are, you know, of course, needing housing. We have a mom that we are working with now. Their family has been homeless for four years. And in that four years, two of the years, the family has been separated. And, and it's just because they cannot live in the same place together because for the most part, they've been kind of couch surfing. So helping them to get under one roof, helping them to find hope for achieving their goals of education and employment, where going to a shelter for them was not going to work because they didn't qualify for a shelter. And you'd be amazed. A lot of people think that just because you've been through, you know, domestic violence that you can just go to a shelter, but not everyone qualifies for a shelter. And that's why there are a lot of people that are still homeless because if they are not in what's considered an immediate threat, they don't qualify for shelter. They don't qualify for normal transitional housing. And so they do find themselves homeless and therefore they find themselves without job. So we find that a lot uh, with the people that we're working with, that they've been homeless for a year or more. And some have been living an extended stay, which is spending a lot more money than they would if they were actually living in their own place. I had no idea. And I, I feel really ignorant right now. I didn't realize that you had to qualify for shelter? You have to qualify for shelter. So there's a couple of ways that someone can reach out for help. You can call, you know, an 800 number. And one of the numbers that they can call is uh, the Safe DVS line. And when they call Safe DVS, um, you go through a screening. And through that screening, they are looking at, um, it's, it's an assessment threat to see where you know, what's going on with you so that they can see where they can actually place you. And so understanding that system, one, you have to think about 
if you are being victimized, how can you call Safe DVS? You have to get to a safe place in order to make a phone call. You have to be in a safe place in order to sit through and go through the assessment. And when you think about that, you have to think about the connection between the time that someone needs to get away to make that phone call and the time or the the time that their victimizer is counting of why are you gone so long? Why are you not home? Because their time is being monitored. So it's a very delicate balance of while you may want to escape, how do you make that escape without putting yourself back in danger? Right. And of course, we always you know, tell the advice given to women who are in situations that they're trying to get out of is as part of the plan, like have a safe place to go. Have a safe place to go. And easier finding that safe done. Place, Yeah, it's, it's easier. It's, it's, yeah, it's easier said than done. And one of the things that we do with our organization is we realize that for obvious reasons, shelters, transitional homes, they're just not on the grid, you know, for safety reasons. But our organization is set up to where the transitional homes, again, they are off the grid, but we do have a resource center and someone can walk into our resource center. And we use, we're not standalone. We are actually um, in an area that is safe for us. Um, There's cameras, (laughs) there's security. And so it does make it a, um, a place of refuge. So someone can come in and they can seek help. And if they need to come in and make a phone call, they can come into our facility. They can make a phone call while sitting there. And if the uh, transportation, transcom is not coming for an hour or two hours to pick them up, well, guess what? They can stay right there in that office and I'm not leaving until they get picked up. And if they can't get picked up, then, you know, we'll give them a safe place to stay until arrangements can be made for them to go somewhere. That is wonderful. I hope that there are other places that have a similar kind of model. Do you, do you work with other organizations to sort of share practices like that and help other groups come up with ways that they can provide actually tangible, real services to support people who are trying to deal with this kind of situation? Well, we do work with other nonprofits to provide the services um, that we do. When I, when I started the Silla Comfort Center, um, I realized that there are a lot of nonprofits that are out here and there are a lot of great people out doing a lot of great things. But with that, there come, it comes at a cost. And that cost is put back onto the community. And so for me, it's problem solving. How do I come out of the gate with my organization to help our community, but not be an added burden on the community. And so to do that, we definitely work with other nonprofits to facilitate our programs and services so that we are not competing for resources, but we're sharing resources because we don't want to be a burden on the community that we're trying to help. And so with that, we come up with, you know, innovative ways that we can work within or amongst our organizations to help um, those that we're serving and to get the word out to various people in the community um, so that we're all not just crawling over each other, so to speak, and working in those same sectors. But we share our information, we share our resources to try to spread the word as much as possible. 
That's great. I, I like that approach a lot. And it does come back to what you were talking about way back at the beginning about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. We figure if we can demonstrate that, you know, we can't just try to teach those who are coming out of unhealthy relationships that it's important to develop healthy relationship. We have to be able to demonstrate or practice what we preach, so to speak. And so we build those relationships so that they can see that, they can feel and experience that, but they can also build those relationships with those that we've built relationships with. So we're sharing our community and helping them to broaden their community as well. That's great. Well, we have been talking for almost an hour here and <laughs> covered so much ground. It's, it's awesome. I have one more question for you before we wrap it up. Okay. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Be okay with being vulnerable. <laughs> it, it seems contrary, but when we allow ourselves um, to be open and vulnerable, then that allows us to connect to people that will help hold us up. And I say that because sometimes as women, we try to be so strong all the time and on our own. But the greatest strength comes from being vulnerable and realizing that you can't do it all on your own. So I would say to allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to have strong people in your life that will help hold you up, that will have your back and realize you can't do everything on your own. You try to do everything on your own and that's the fastest way to fall apart. I like it and that actually prompts another question. So I know I okay. said that was the last question, but <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I guess working with a population of people who have experienced abuse mm -hmm. where their vulnerability has been taken advantage of, and I'm sure the ability to trust and to identify people that you can safely be vulnerable with mm -hmm. is kind of damaged. Like how do you how do you marry those two things? How do you, if you've experienced something like that, where you have lost faith in your ability to recognize potentially dangerous people, but you also want to step into this new space that you're talking about where you, you can be vulnerable with people who are strong and can, who can help you. Like, how do you get from place A to place B? Well, okay. So that is such a great question. We were actually talking about this probably about two weeks ago and one of our group sessions. <laughs> um, we were actually talking about vulnerability because that is a challenge. It is it's a challenge of understanding how to be vulnerable in a healthy way. And I say that because one of the things we were talking about was, you know, as we approach new relationship, do we hold people that are now coming into our lives accountable for what um, people in our past have done. And when I posed that question to my group, it got quiet and everyone kind of looked away and I was like, wow, so we, is that what we're doing? We're kind of holding 
new people accountable for what old people have done instead of looking at what happened in that relationship. Why, why, how did we um, move into that relationship? What were we looking for? What were we trying to obtain in that relationship? Because sometimes when we get into those situations, and I'm not saying that being a victim is our fault, right? But what I'm saying is sometimes there are things that we have experienced even in our life that we haven't um, dealt with, uh, we haven't identified, we haven't been honest about that keep us from, it affects our perspective when we're dealing with people that we bring into our life. For instance, if I have, if I can say it this way, if I have certain daddy issues or if I have been having, if I had certain issues with my parents growing up and then I may look for certain things in that new relationship that I'm moving into um, based off of what I've seen with my parents, even if that was unhealthy because I can't identify what that is. And so that affects how I'm dealing with these new people. And so I want something from them that that person could never give me. That person was already toxic, but I could never identify that that was toxic because I haven't dealt with the things in my past. Does that make sense so far? It really does. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And so I would say even for myself, not healing from things in my past, then it put blinders on me when I opened the door to let people into my life because I couldn't see what was toxic. It was all great because of something that I was for that hole that I was trying to fill, for that void I was trying to fulfill. And that void I was fulfilling was not looking for a healthy relationship. It was something else. It was another type of need. Yes. So once I am now um, working as a whole person, because I've worked on myself, I've done some self-discovery. I've been honest about things that happened in my past, whether people like it or not, whether people accept it or not. But this is my truth. And I'm working on my truth. And I'm honest about my truth. Now I can start dealing with people because now I can start dealing with people as a whole person. So I think as we have, sometimes even if we, if we, as, as we've been through things, we don't give ourselves time to heal. We don't give ourselves time to do the internal work of, okay, making sure I am not moving in through something else that is toxic because of a void that I'm trying to fill. I need someone to help me feel better. No, do you feel better by yourself? And then you bring someone else into your life and then you can move forward together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is so fascinating because you keep saying things that are triggering other things <laughs> in my brain. And, you know, I always, I always see things through my personal safety and self-defense lens, right? That's, that's the world that I live in. And I know that for a lot of people who have experienced violence and abuse earlier and are moving on through their lives, one of the things is like, if you look back and you, this is part of the introspection is starting to recognize that when it happened and you were in that situation, you maybe didn't even know because of where you were in your life. Yeah. 
what the warning signs were. You didn't recognize that somebody was actually grooming you and manipulating you and, and exerting what we now label as coercive control. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't know that then. And a really big step to being able to have different kinds of relationships going forward is to get educated about those things so that moving forward, you can say, ah, this is actually a warning sign. This is actually somebody who's trying to groom me or manipulate me. These are the things like I didn't know because I was four years old, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is the stuff that I thought was normal. Like it's it's something that came up when I was doing a lot of research into the teen dating violence world. Mm-hmm. And it was really just like, if if nobody ever talks to you about what normal and healthy loving relationships are and you're in one, you know, your first one maybe as a teen, that is abusive and where you are being controlled and you're you're being manipulated like you just think well this he says he loves me so this must be what love is like yes especially when you start dealing with the jealousy and it's like oh they're jealous because they love me no 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 they're jealous there's something else that's going on there that has nothing to do with you right (laughs) right so i think you know the the other piece of what you're talking about with the introspection is looking outwards and kind of learning what the patterns and the behaviors are of people who prey upon those of us who get preyed upon. Yes. You Um, definitely have to be able to identify those signs. Yeah. Is that Um, something that you work with? Yes, we definitely work with that. We work with um, um, a company or another nonprofit. They're called Katie's Way. And Bobby Sudbury, uh, her daughter was a victim of uh, teen dating violence. Um, her daughter's deceased. And um, so this is how she started her foundation or her organization. And so she teaches those risks and warning signs of uh, teen dating violence, unhealthy relationship, but also helping people to be able to see themselves so that they can also identify unhealthy relationships. And how even looking at examples of what teens are into and how they relate to one another today. She does a lot of those examples. And although she does that for uh, teens, she still does the advocacy piece of it, uh, the advocate piece of it so that adults can understand those warning signs as well. Because, you know, I I hate to say it, but sometimes the adults are kind of influencing that oh wow it's so cute that you know your your friend is jealous and that's not healthy it's not healthy at all right well i i love that and i think the combination of that kind of work and what you were talking about of i mean that that question that you asked in the group that just led to silence mm-hmm. <laughs> i think led to silence because that's like an, oh shit wow oh Maybe yeah i am like judging people today by yesterday's people. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, it's hard. Cause I tell them, you know, think about it. If you have, if you, if you can't make that, that connection to the new people, that new person is fighting, has to fight so hard to dig themselves out of what you're projecting the old person's behavior onto them. So they're having to dig and climb and work and work. And why should they have to work they, that hard? You have to be able to see that person. Because if you want people to see you and not just see what you've been through so that when you do tell them or if you do decide to share, you're not defined by that, 
and don't define the new people by by what your by what the old people have done. Yes. Yes, that is the perfect flip side. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a powerful conversation, Shawanda. I am so glad that we were able to arrange for you to come on the show. This has been an absolute treat to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, with that, I think we should wrap it up. Before we go, though, I want to give you a chance to let people know how to get in touch with you. And also just to say that some of the resources and the groups that you referred to, we will put some links to in the show notes as well. Okay. Thank you. So in order to reach me with or Decilla Comfort Center, um, you can connect with us through our website, which is www.decillacenter.org. We are also on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Decilla Center. And we are also on Twitter, although we are not as active on Twitter, (laughs) we are more active on Facebook and Instagram. And it doesn't matter whether you are in Arizona or Alaska or Texas, if you want to reach out to us, we are here to help. Our neighbor is not just the person that lives next door to us. Our neighbor is anyone who reaches out to us for help. And we will try to connect you with the resources, even in your area. And some of our resources we can also provide via Zoom. So reach out to us. That's great. Well, I'm sure there are going to be people who do reach out to you. And I'm very grateful that you were able to come on the show. So thank you so much, Shawanda. Thank you so much for having me today, Cynthia. Well, this has been the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.